Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number three in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, February the 21st. First, I talk to Sydney Thomas, an associate of Precursor Ventures, an early stage investment fund working with startups who visited Australia with a Girl Geek Academy as an expert in residence working with women startup founders. And then I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's happening in the market next week. But first, let's talk to Sydney Thomas. Hi there, Sydney. Tell us about Precursor Ventures. Yeah, so Precursor Ventures is a pre-seed investment firm. So pre-seed for us means we're investing in companies that are pre-traction, pre-market, pre-launch. And so we call them pre-everything companies. And we have invested in about 100 some odd companies uh, to date. It is Charles Hudson is the managing partner and I am... The, there's two other team members, actually. It's me and an analyst, Diana. And uh, we just kind of like go full steam ahead with this tiny little team and supporting the companies and the entrepreneurs that we, that we back. And you've set up a thing called the Girl Geek Academy. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Yeah. Well, tell us about that. So I am super grateful to Sarah, who is the CEO and founder of Girl Geek Academy, for inviting me out to Melbourne to essentially meet all the amazing entrepreneurs who she's working with. And so I got the chance to meet a few of them actually just a few nights ago. And they're awesome and building really interesting companies that are, I think, particularly mission-driven to help Melbourne manage its, well, actually a lot of things. There was one that was working on like helping sex workers organize. There was another that was helping manage information for women who need to navigate streets and need to know which streets are safe and which streets aren't. And so all of them have some sort, it seemed like all of them had some sort of core tenant around making this world a better place for women, which I thought was really awesome. And is this about uh, helping women in, in get well, helping women develop startups and businesses as well? Yes. So the overall academy, yes, is helping introduce women to the game, so to speak, of raising venture capital, founding companies, and building their companies to the next level. So how many how many issues do women have raising capital? Oh my gosh. A lot. <laughs> I think the hard thing about uh, venture capital is that it is much more of an art than science. And so what that means is that, you know, oftentimes people will get introduced to VCs via their network, and then the VCs will decide to invest sometimes based off of data, but sometimes based off of gut. And a lot of these subjective decisions are often ruled by the subconscious, which is oftentimes, I think, you know, not as thoughtful as the conscience. And so subconscious can, I think, sometimes lead us to make decisions based off of fear or based off of things that we just that we think we know best. And so that can mean that a white guy decides to invest in his friend who is another white guy just because, you know, he's his friend, he trusts him. But this unknown woman is just, you know, a little more scary, a little more untested. And so less likely to invest in that in that woman. And so what we see in the data is that only, I think, 2% of venture capital dollars went to women last year. That's extraordinary. Only 2%. Yes. It is insane. And how much demand is there from women to set up their own businesses and requiring venture capital? Yeah. So we've actually seen, especially in, a, in the States, it's not really a pipeline problem. There's a number of women who are interested in venture capital and they just aren't don't have the networks or don't have the access to the money that their classmates or colleagues who are men have access to. And so in the States, there's this program called All Raise, which is set up to specifically help women entrepreneurs and women investors are like on both sides of the table find and network with each other and i think one of the awesome things that has come from that is that we've seen actually a lot more women just kind of like on the scene in a way that in a way that is more public and so they're getting a lot more press than i think they would have normally and so in the US the wing for example which is a women owned company building out a co-working space for women just received a $75 million investment from Sequoia Capital from a female partner at Sequoia Capital. And I just don't think we would have seen this type of this type of organizing or this type of support without 
um, some of these organizations that have sprung up, like All Raised, uh, to help facilitate these types of connections? Uh, right. So basically, though, what we're, what we're seeing here, though, is a, is a situation where if we get more women involved in venture capital, we're more likely to see women entrepreneurs get venture capital for their businesses. Would that be right? I think that's true. But I do think that I want to caution. I want to caution us from relying too much on women VCs because I think that, you know, the change happens when we have really strong allies across the whole community. So I think male VCs need to be held accountable in investing in women entrepreneurs just as much as women VCs do. And so um, I hope that we see a lot of courage on both sides where we are seeing just the numbers improve significantly over the next couple of years. One of the interesting thing is uh, you would have issues with, say, say, for example, women of colour or ethnic women mm-hmm. wanting to set up their businesses and they would have particular difficulty, wouldn't they, getting venture capital? Oh, my gosh, it's terrible. So women, of, specifically black women, raise less than 1% of all of the venture dollars. Less, less than 1% of all of the venture dollars are given to black women entrepreneurs. And that is particularly um, close to home for me because I am a black woman. I am one of about 50 black women in VC, which is also a dismal stat. And I think that, you know, when we talk about these connections and these these um, networks really creating the pipeline of investment, I think women of color are even more ostracized from these traditional networks than white women. And so you see that reflected in, in the percentage of folks who get percentage of women of color who get venture funding. I think that the good thing is that. People are at least starting to talk about it. I think that race has been a very taboo topic in in San Francisco. We're not, I think, a really great reason. And we're starting to at least acknowledge that race is, race, race is a thing that exists <laughs> and should be addressed. Um, and I think that's, that's step one. And so step two is making sure that we are ensuring that our networks we're building bridges with networks who have who have more diverse pipelines and so for us what that means at precursor is that i'm going to the black and brown founders conference that was in philadelphia last fall that means that i am going to places like morocco for um tech conferences that means that i'm doing things in um on social media to make sure that women of color know that i'm here and want to talk to them and so i think a lot of people think that, especially in VC, that as long they're there, as long as they're just there, everyone will come to them. And I think that's just not true. You have to make the extra effort to find people and who you would like to invest in, and to find specifically diverse people who you would like to invest in, because that's how you that's how you change things. And Precursor Ventures is very much about building those bridges. Exactly. We are. We are the managing partner. Charles is from Detroit. I am from San Diego and Ayana, who is our analyst, is from New York. And so we all have very different networks and ecosystems that we're bringing to the table. And in addition to that, we're working extra hard to make sure that we are building, like you said, bridges with with people across the country and internationally in order to ensure that 
people know that we exist and know that they should come to us um, for investment. So it's it's fundamentally, uh, once that bridge is built, uh, we're going to see the pipelines being opened up to women. That's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping. I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of things that need to happen once women are invested in as well in order to make sure that they're successful. I think there's like some best practices that people need to explore, um, I, especially with Issa, I'm sure, like the Harvey Weinstein and all of the sexual harassment issues that really took Hollywood and the Bay, specifically venture capital by storm over the last couple of years. And I think that there needs to be, people need to take a cold hard look at their own their own ways that they decide to mentor women entrepreneurs who they invest in and make sure that they are are doing it in a way that is supportive for that woman entrepreneur and in their best interest and is also I mean honestly I think in a way that looks really similar to the way that they're mentoring and coaching the the white male entrepreneurs that they have in their portfolio because I think it's great for them to get in the door but we need to also make sure that once they're in the door, that they are that they are successful. Well, Sydney, more strength to your arm and more strength to Precursor Ventures and wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Of course. Yes, it's great talking to you as well. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James. Uh, Craig James, what can we expect from the market this following week? Well, it's going to be a fairly quiet week in terms of fresh economic data. So I've only been able to five uh, five events or five indicators to be able to watch over over the the week. Um, Tuesday, we see the the weekly reading of consumer confidence. Now, this occurs each and every week, but um, ANZ and Roy Morgan will come out with their their weekly reading of consumer confidence. It's pretty fair to say at the moment uh, that. Um, the average consumer is feeling okay about his or her finances, but you know, sort of, in terms of the outlook for for the economy, that's where there's a degree of un- uncertainty, and that's where there's a degree of softness in terms of consumer uh, outlooks. You know, I suppose when you consider you know, the environment that we've been in, uh, we've had you know, some bushfires, we've had drought, we've had floods, we've had hailstorms. Um, all those sorts of events, you know, sort of clearly take its toll on the average uh, individual. So that's happening on Tuesday. On Wednesday, construction workers coming out from the Bureau of Statistics. This is for the December quarter. It um, the amount of work done for uh, residential uh, home building as well as uh, commercial and engineering. Now, what we're seeing at the moment is that. While work in terms of uh, new dwellings or new home building is, is weakening, commercial building is, is actually uh, sort of lifting so, somewhat. In fact, commercial work remaining to be done is sitting at record highs at the moment. So uh, the, the, the figures, as I say, for the December quarter, we expect the construction work done probably fell by 1% in the December quarter uh, because a residential work uh, is probably, you know, so the falls in residential work is probably outpacing the, the firmer commercial commercial projects. Uh, the highlight of the week in, in the coming week is business investment figures coming out on Thursday. Now, it comes with a convoluted title from the Bureau of Statistics called Private New Capital Expenditure and Expected Expenditure. Now, what it is is basically business investment figures, whether it's new buildings or whether it's new plants and, and equipment. So um, we've also got um, not just the, the work done or the, the spending done you know, so for the December quarter, also the expectations in terms of investment for the, for the next year or so. 
Um, the uh, Commonwealth Bank Group economists have looked at the figures and they believe that investment probably rose by 1.5% in the December quarter. We'll be watching very, very closely those outlook in terms of um, uh, new investment intentions you know, because um, clearly the Reserve Bank Governor has spoken about this recently. He said, look, yes, we need to get you know, businesses investing a whole lot more. Uh, rounding out the week on Thursday, we've got some detailed figures on, on the labour market. Um, uh, the regional and demographic data is certainly the areas that we focus on there. And um, Friday, we have from the Reserve Bank private sector credit. This is effectively loans outstanding. It also includes some of the monetary aggregates um, uh, like M3 and broad money. Now, private sector credit or loans outstanding has been growing at a very weak pace. 0.2% increase in December, 0.2% in November, annual growth, nine and a half year lows of 2.4%. But what we are seeing is that uh, new lending for homes, uh, housing lending, is lifting. Uh, and that means that we could start to see private sector credit lifting, yes, as well. In fact, we're looking for a three-tenths of 1%, 0.3% growth in January credit on the strength of um, housing lending, particularly for owner occupation. But I think um, in the next couple of months, we're going to continue to see some strength in terms of uh, investor housing lending and owner-occupied you know, so housing lending yes, as well. So uh, that's the, the outlook in terms of the domestic indicators, um, uh, overseas indicators. There's a spattering figures, as there usually is in terms of the United States. Uh, figures like consumer confidence, um, home prices will be coming out, uh, revised economic growth figures. And uh, if we look forward to uh, Saturday, February 29, uh, China has its purchasing managers indexed out for February. Now, that could be very, very interesting uh, given the, the coronavirus, and we'll have to see you know, sort of what sort of readings will come out for, for that. So that's something to look for, for a little bit later in you know, so the week we're looking out into to Saturday. So, I mean, that's that's very interesting. I mean, uh, so where do you see this local data affecting GDP? Uh, well, in terms of the GDP figures, um, it's very much the um, figures on construction work, which is on, on Wednesday, and uh, the business investment figures on Thursday. Um, and... Uh, as I said, in terms of construction work, we're looking for a decline in construction work, construction work by 1%. But in terms of uh, private new capital expenditure, we're looking for a gain in the order of 1.5%. So in terms of the business components, so the, the construction work, um, uh, the dwelling figures will be the input to GDP equation, the, the economic growth equation, and the business investment figures will basically be uh, that input in terms of economic growth as well. So we'll have a couple of readings you know, coming through. Uh, we've already had the data in terms of um, retail spending that is coming through. So we're going to get you know, sort of a number of the, the indicators for, for GDP. So we're looking at Wednesday week for the, uh, the economic growth figures. And at this stage, it's um, probably going to be a very small uh, growth in terms of the economy. Um, could we have gone backwards in the December quarter? It's possible, uh, given the, uh, the drought and, and the bushfires that, that have occurred and disrupted economic activity. Um, um, more likely that what we're going to see is a fairly weak result, something like a 0.1%, 0.2% growth. So, um, uh, but um, certainly, yes, yeah, so this is the, the major focus, I suppose. Yes, yeah, so now um, in the coming week, we get two indicators that will be feeding into that GDP equation, uh, adding to the, the data that we've already seen in terms of retail spending. And, uh, and so where do you see the, this affecting the RBA? 
Well, in terms of the, the, the Reserve Bank, uh, we're still of the view that the Reserve Bank may have a little bit more work to do in terms of uh, interest rate cuts. Um, uh, it, it's not really you know, sort of a, a forecast because uh, it really depends on um, employment figures now as to what the, the Reserve Bank is going to do. But um, uh, it's our expectation that um, uh, the Reserve Bank could cut interest rates again. Um, uh, may occur you know, as early as April. Um, we, we may see another reading you know, in August. Uh, we're just not totally convinced by the um, uh, the forecast for, from the, the Reserve Bank uh, whether they're going to be met, particularly in terms of um, their estimates of economic growth. Inflation may be a little bit on the low side as well, and that may mean that the Reserve Bank will be tempted to cut interest rates again. So. Uh, certainly, I think you know, sort of for, for most economists around town, when they're, they're looking at the economic data, uh, when they're looking at the Reserve Bank expectations, they're looking at the state of the world as, as well with coronavirus. Um, the, the risk is in the current environment that the Reserve Bank may have to do more in terms of cutting interest rates. Well, that's interesting. And the China figures will be fascinating too because of the, the impact of the coronavirus affecting the world's second biggest economy. Mm-hmm. Yes, my word. You know, so so um, uh, as I said, you know, so Saturday is the February 29th is the time to watch out for the, the Chinese data. So um, if um, the, the figures come out, you know, so on the soft side, you know, sort of Australia and New Zealand will be the first markets to to respond to that, you know, so on the Monday. So certainly that is something to watch out for. I suppose the other thing that we should mention about, you know, so the, the coming week is that this is the um, uh, the last week of the Australian corporate profit reporting season. So that will be winding up and you know, sort of certainly that will have implications for the, the share market over the week and then potentially for, for the Australian dollar as well. But we've got you know, quite a number of uh, luminary uh, companies reporting over the, the week. We've got Blue Scope Steel um, reporting the, the results um, on Monday. Tomorrow, you know, so what we have in terms of um, um, Blackmore's uh, oil searches down there, we've got Woolworths uh, have, uh, reporting its results on Wednesday together with Rio Tinto and Nine Entertainment. Um, and then later in, in the week, we've got Harvey Norman, which um, uh, hasn't provided a date for, for reporting their results, but no doubt it's going to be Friday and um, looking ahead to, to see what they're saying in terms of uh, retail spending, not just for, for the last six months, but you know, sort of how it has been tracking over January. And uh, what's your assessment of the profit reporting season so far? So far, so good. Uh, you, you consider, you know, so the environment the companies have been reporting their, their results in. Um, now, most of the results uh, for the big companies, the ASX 200, have been for, for the um, uh, six months to December. Um, and you consider that sort of environment where there was the uncertainty still in terms of um, the US-China trade situation. Um, uh, domestically, we were starting to see, you know, sort of through October, November and December, we were seeing bushfires. We had the uncertainty about some of the um, rural and regional focused uh, companies uh, the, in terms of the, the drought. Um, but despite all that, you know, sort of some of the results so far have been, you know, sort of quite extraordinarily good. Um, in fact, we've got something like 60% of companies that have managed to uh, see their uh, share price rise on on the day of the release of their their results, and so that's quite encouraging. And um, uh, quite a number, you know, sort of uh, companies which are beating expectations um, with their results, uh, such as uh, CSL and JB Hi-Fi. Well, that's all fascinating and. 
uh, Craig James, thank you very much for your time. Not a problem, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, wages growth flatlined as expected in the December quarter, expanding by just 0.5%, the same as, as in the September quarter. Total hourly rates of pay, excluding bonuses, rose by a seasonally adjusted 2.2% year-on-year, according to figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. This was the lowest public sector growth rate since the commencement of the index in the December quarter, 1997. And around half of the slowdown in wages growth in Australia is a result of weakening productivity, which is now going backwards for the first time since a mining boom, the Productivity Commission says. The Commission's chair, Michael Brennan, says ongoing output growth has pushed Australia recession-free hot streak out to 28 consecutive years, a record that is the envy of policymakers the world over. That said, this year, Australia's productivity has slipped backwards for the first time since the mining boom, Mr Brennan says in the report released on Monday. Output growth has been driven by strong growth in employment rather than doing things better. The report shows two measures of productivity fell in 2018-19. Labor productivity dropped 0.2% in that financial year, while multi-factor productivity was down 0.4%. The latter was the first fall since 2011. And Coles says it has underpaid staff in its supermarket and liquor stores and has set aside $20 million to pay back employees. Cole says about 5% of its liquor and supermarket managers have not been paid to industry standard. This makes up about 1% of all staff, with the review going back six years. The company said it was reviewing arrangements for staff who were paid a salary under the General Retail Industry Award, and had so far found about 5% of supermarket and liquor store managers were not paid correctly. The total underpayments plus interest came to $16 million from its supermarket arm and $4 million from the liquor division and affected 1% of total staff. Chief Executive Stephen Kane apologised to affected staff and said they would be contacted once the review was finalised. And West Farmers discovered underpayments at its Target stores. And with Coles joining companies like Woolworths, Bunnings, Subway and West Farmers in underpaying workers, Canberra is considering measures to crack down on the underpayment of workers, which could include company directors being disqualified from holding office. Attorney General Christian Porter is set to bring legislation to Parliament to make it a criminal offence to exploit workers, including fines and jail terms. And Toll Group is struggling to restore its networks after it was subjected to the most significant cyber attack in Australian corporate history. The shipping behemoth, is facing growing discontent from a cluster of massive clients, including Telstra, Officeworks and Footlocker, as it attempts to recover from the crippling ransomware attack infected its systems two weeks ago. The attack paralysed many of its delivery and tracking systems, leaving it unable to tell customers where their parcels were. It now faces stiff financial penalties from disgruntled clients. And about 600 Holden employees will lose their jobs after parent company General Motors announced it would axe the iconic Australian car brand by the end of the year. The company pledged to provide at least 10 more years of customer service for Holden owners. GM executives said the brand was struggling in a fragmented right-hand drive market. GM said the brand was no longer competitive in the current market and would be retired from sales, design and engineering across Australia and New Zealand by 2021. The announcement drew criticism from the government, with Prime Minister Scott Morrison saying he was angry the brand was allowed to wither away. 
Federal Industry Minister Karen Andrews said it was unacceptable the decision was made without consulting the government. Now, Holden ended its Australian manufacturing operations in October 2017, forcing hundreds of job losses. About 800 Holden employees have remained in Australia, including 600 Melbourne workers, focused on designing cars for the Australian market. GM International Operations Senior Vice President Julian Blissett said Monday's announcement would mean the overwhelming majority of Holden staff would lose their jobs by the end of June 2020. And mining giant Rio Tinto has become the latest major iron ore miner in West Australia's Pilbara region to turn to renewables to lowest cost and cut emissions, announcing that a new solar farm and a lithium-iron battery will supply all the daytime electricity needs and two-thirds of the annual requirements of its new $2.6 billion Kudaderi project. Rio Tinto says it will spend $98 million on a new 34-megawatt solar farm at the Kudadera mine in Pilbara, as well as a 45-megawatt and 12-megawatt lithium-ion battery energy storage system that will help power its entire Pilbara power network. It will be Rio Tinto's first company-owned solar facility, although it also has a small solar facility located at its bauxite mine in Weeper. Rio Tinto joins other iron ore majors in the Pilbara also shifting to solar and battery storage because of the lower costs. Andrew Twiggy Forest Fortescue Mines announced last month that it will be building an extra 150 megawatts of solar and a big battery as it links up all its iron ore resources in the Pilbara into a single network for the first time. And KPMG has revealed it failed to flag problems with the financial statements of two of the eight collapsed listed companies it audited over the last 10 years. The firm was auditor of MRI Holdings, Nilex, CPI, Guns, Forge Group, WDS, Mirabella Nickel and Arium immediately before their corporate failures. Now the big four consulting firms have all been asked by Green Senator Peter Wish-Wilson to provide details of collapsed companies they audited in the past decade as part of the ongoing audit quality inquiry. KPMG also admitted it had settled six legal actions related to its audit quality of collapsed companies in the last decade. And the profit reporting season continues. BHP Group's revenue rose 7% to US $22.3 billion or $33.2 billion Aussie, while profit after taxation climbed to US $4.9 billion. Fortescue posted a US $2.45 billion, that's $3.66 billion Aussie, half-year profit on Wednesday, which was well above the US $2.3 billion expected by analysts and well above the US $644 million result posted in the same period of last year. Coles' net profit fell 33.7% to $489 million in the December half as modest earnings growth in the supermarkets was offset by weaker profits from liquor and convenience stores after the restructuring of its hotel and fuel businesses. Underlying earnings before interest and tax for the 27 weeks to January 5 rose 0.4% to $725 million, in line with Coles' guidance for EBIT between $710 million and $730 million. Tabcor's revenue rose 4.4% to $2.9 billion, while net profit before significant items closed 2.9% to $213.5 million. Domino's Pizza reported a 29% increase in revenue to $905.8 million, while net profit rose 29.8% to $69.2 million. Sonic Healthcare's underlying EBITDA for the first half of the year rose 14% to $548 million, while revenue grew 15% to $3.3 billion. Crown's normalised EBITDA slid 9% to 
to $381.3 million, while normalised net profit dipped 11% to $172.7 million. Vocus Group's half-year statutory net profit fell 22% to $12.8 million, although on an adjusted basis it reported a flat profit of $54.4 million. Pact Group's revenue fell 3% to $886 million for the first half, while EBITDA rose 2% to $145 million. Net profit after tax rose 4% to $33 million. Seven West Media has reported a $66.3 million loss in the first six months of the financial year, down from $83.8 million profit in the prior corresponding period. Sims has reported underlying earnings loss of $23.2 million, down from a positive $109.6 million in the first half of the last year. Engineering and mining services business Monodelphus reported a half-year net profit down 7.4% to $28.4 million on total sales of 0.1% to $777.5 million. Accounting platform Reckon has reported a full-year net profit up 5% to $8.1 million on revenue flat at $75.4 million. Ansel reported sales of US $753.3 million that's $1.12 billion Aussie, up 3.9% on the previous half, while earnings before interest and tax firmed 4.8% to US $91.8 million. Cochlear's first half underlying net profit was flat at $132.7 million, and revenue increased 9% to $777.6 million. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank's statutory net profit fell 28.2% to $145.8 million, while cash earnings after tax slid 2%, to $215.4 million. QBE's adjusted net cash profit after tax was $733 million, up 6% from the previous year. The group's combined operating ratio of 97.5% was higher than its target rate of 945 to 96.5%, largely due to adverse weather conditions which it said severely impacted its US crop insurance business. Saracen Mineral Holdings has reported an 84% increase in its underlying net profit after tax. GWA Group's earnings before interest and tax dropped 2.6% to $38.1 million, leading to the group reducing its interim dividend from $0.09 to $0.08. Regis Resources has reported a record net profit up 17% to $93.4 million on revenue of $371.4 million for the half year ended December 31, 2019. Brambles has reported first half underlying profit of US $435.5 million, up 1% net on the prior corresponding period and 5% higher excluding foreign exchange impacts. Mining technology company Imdex has reported a 12% increase in underlying earnings in the first half of the financial year, driven largely by increased activity within the Asia-Pacific. Asset manager Eleanor Investments has reported a statutory loss of $12.39 million for the half year ended December 31, 2019. Lending provider Money 3's first half revenue rose 55%, to $62.7 million, while earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation grew 36.9% to $30.5 million, and net profit after tax rose 34.6% to $115.7 million. Wilson Asset Management's listed investment company, Wham Research, has reported a half-year operating profit after tax up 159% to $11 million, SGC Fleet's net profit for the first six months of the fiscal year fell 16.6% to $24.5 million from the prior corresponding period. Mining services company Emico Holdings reported a 16% increase in operating EBITDA 
to $119.1 million, while net profit after tax rose 33% to $42.1 million on the prior corresponding period. Westfield owner Centre Group has forecast 2020 operating earnings of 24.75% to 24.8 cents a share, or pro forma growth of 3.1% after delivering its full year result. NetWealth's total income rose 21.7% to $58.7 million, while net profit after tax climbed 26.3% to $20.5 million. APA Group reported a 6.9% increase in earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation to $842.2 million, while net profit after tax rose 11.2% to $175 million. Class Limited has reported a 30% fall in profit for the first six months of the financial year following a 25% increase in its product investment. The company said it was pleased with the performance in the first half of the year, with operating revenue rising 8% to $20.5 million, while EBITDA slid 7% to $8.1 million. Southeast Asia-focused dark fibre business Superloop has reported a half-year net loss of $21.4 million on total income of $51.3 million. The net loss nearly tripled on the prior year's $8.7 million, with the revenue down 14.9%. Nickel miner Western Area's sales revenue rose from $123.7 million in the previous year to $156.2 million, while EBITDA increased 128% to $69.7 million. Abacus Property Group has reported a first-half underlying profit of $64.3 million, down 10.7% on the first six months of last year. Jobs Marketplace, freelancer, has reported a slightly wider full-year net loss of $1.59 million on sales up 12% to a record $58 million. ARB Corporation's revenue for the first half rose 7.3% to $233.4 million, while net profit after tax declined to $25.3 million. Online retailer Kogan.com reported a 16.4% increase in gross sales to $322.9 million, while revenue slid 5.3% to $219.5 million following the launch of Kogan Marketplace. Gross profit for the six-month period was up 10.6% to $49.9 million. High-flying software group Altium reported net profit was down slightly to US$23 million due to a higher tax rate, but EBITDA was up. 22% to $36.8 million. IWF Holdings has reported a 39.2% fall in underlying net profit after tax from continuing operations to $56.6 million, reflecting a focus in reshaping the business to be fit for purpose for the opportunities ahead. Ingenia Communities reported a revenue increase of 25% to $116.9 million on the prior corresponding period, while earnings before interest and tax rose to $32.2 million. Underlying profit rose 52%, to $26.5 million, and statutory profit firmed 81% to $23.6 million. Oz Minerals reported its underlying net profit falling $164 million, down from $228 million in the prior year. Cleanaway Waste Management's gross revenue rose 4.1% to $1.2 billion, while underlying EBITDA rose 2.5% to $234.6 million. West Farmers' net profit from continuing operations rose 4.4% to $1.13 billion. Nearmap has reported an $18.6 million loss in the first half of the year, as the as company increased its operating expenses significantly. The loss was well down on the $2 million loss from the prior corresponding period. Levisa said its first half net profit after tax rose a 4.5% on a statutory basis to $26.7 million. 
Salary packaging, Noveda Leasing and asset management company Macmillan Shakespeare reported a 1% fall in revenue to $270.4 million and a 0.3% slide in net profit after tax to $34 million. Gift card business, EML Payments, has marginally adjusted its profit guidance for financial 2020 and reported record first half adjusted EBITDA up 42% to $59.2 million. Its statutory half-year profit climbed 68%, $4.3 million. Webjet reported half-year earnings of EBITDA of $86.3 million, with a 43% lift on the prior previous half-year. Medical Development reported half-year net profit up 82% to $240,000. Asalio Care swung to a full-year net profit after tax of $22.1 million from a loss of $108.7 million a year ago. Vicinity Centre's revenue for the first half fell 3.6% to $635.5 million, while funds from operations dropped 3.6% to $337 million. Internet and cloud services business over-the-wire holdings half-year profit fell 27% to $2.3 million on EBITDA, or operating income, up 1% to $8.2 million. It will pay an interim dividend of 1.5 cents per share. Santa Barbara reported a statutory profit after tax of $39 million, down from $83 million in the prior corresponding period, while underlying profit after tax fell to $35 million, down from $77 million. Stockland reported a 6% fall in full-year funds from operations from its residential division, $134 million, at an operating profit margin of 17.2%. It is forecast at 19% for the full year. And California-based Regenerative Medicine Group, Avita Medical, has reported its net loss widened 67% to $23.8 million. And finally, McPherson's posted a 3% rise in first-half net profit to $5.7 million. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Eugene Dubasarski, head of the Analytics Academy and chief data scientist at AlphaZeta, looking at how companies should manage their data. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering, looking at Australia's latest unemployment and wages figures. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a terrific week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.